Good evening, and welcome to When the Bar Slammed Home. Tonight, excuse me, is a special a special version of When the Bar Slammed Home. Tonight, I'm going to be speaking with a woman who has a son who has some serious mental issues, and I think this episode is going to mean a lot to a lot of people because there are so many of our loved ones who are behind bars when they really shouldn't be because of their mental health. And I'm hoping that Shalene, I hope I'm saying your name right, um, can shed some light on what happened with her son Joe. And maybe, just maybe, that more people will open up and see the truth of the of the mental health problem that is plaguing our judicial system and our penal system. So with that being said, I'm going to bring Shalene in and she's going to give us a little background on her son, Joe. And I am not using his real name because he has not been to court yet. And from what I understand, he is either looking at time in a mental hospital or he's looking at 25 to life. And I'm hoping against all odds that he does not get 25 to life. So with that, welcome to the show, Shalane. Thank you so much, Stephanie, for having me. I appreciate the opportunity to tell me and uh, my son's story. I think it's so important. And, excuse me, whenever you told me what had occurred, I thought that it was so powerful that I needed to have you right on right away, especially before he does go to uh, court. Right, right. So we were looking at preliminary hearing tomorrow, but it once again has been postponed uh, till sometime next week. So in the meantime, um, my son is just sitting in the local county jail um, with little to no services available to him and uh, definitely not where he needs to be at this time. In his life? No, he really does not. I think that during this downtime, when he has not been to court yet, I think that they should be putting him in a place where he can get some help so he really and fully understands what has occurred. And I don't think, I mean, I don't know, but I don't think that he fully grasped the concept of what has occurred. Definitely not yet. I mean, partially, but not yet. It's, yes. it's kind of all coming more and more clear to him as he's the longer he's in there, the longer he's under different medication. Um, I think it's all kind of hitting him, but slowly. And it's got to be affecting him quite powerfully. Um, If you wouldn't mind, would you take us back to when he was a child and explain why he has these mental problems? Sure. You know, um, I, I look back now and I see different things that most definitely have impacted him. Um, at the time, it wasn't quite as apparent, of course. You know, he was a normal child. Um, his dad and I divorced when he was about two years old, three years old. He went back and forth between me and his dad. Um, his dad had a profound impact on his upbringing, um, unfortunately not in a positive way. His dad used him and his sister as a pawn against me, so um, there was a lot of manipulation, a lot of emotional and um mental abuse by his father over the course of many, many years. He, um, he'd he get in trouble here and there like a, like I would consider a quote-unquote normal child, nothing of major concern. Um, he was molested as a child, unfortunately, by a family member, and uh, that took its toll. However, we weren't really able to get him the help he needed as a victim. Um, 
because so much of my son's issues, once he would see a therapist, would come out and the issues always seemed to be based around the treatment that his father was, you know, or how his father was treating him. So um, every time that would happen, his dad would pull him from that therapy and move him into a new therapist. And then that just kept happening and happening and happening. So I don't feel that my son ever really got the proper uh, help uh, that he needed to go through that process. Um, That's what it sounds like. It's, <clears throat> it sounds like his father didn't want anyone to know what was actually happening. Right. And and I know that there were some things that Jim, my son, did. Uh, I can did, take that out. Okay. Uh, that that was not okay, and as all kids do, but nothing that warranted the behavior by his father. Um, and to his teenage years, it just progressively got worse. Um, he would hold my son down and shave his head as a form of discipline. Um, he would take away the door from his room, his bed, leaving everything taken out of his room except for his bed, a mattress, actually, a mattress on the floor and his clothes on the floor. Um, he was just very verbally and mentally abusive and, and emotionally abusive. And to the point that as he got into his teenage years, um, and after many, many years of complaining and CPS visits, <laughs> uh, <laughs> it was recommended by the court that my son be removed from his home. And once that recommendation finally came to light, his father uh, cried victim and basically said, take him. I don't want him. I'm scared of him, you know, and then decided to bring up all kinds of horrible things. was removed from his father's home. Um, he was placed in a juvenile hall for about 45 days. Um, obviously, there's a lot of to, to that backstory of how that happened, but again, it was not where he needed to be. He needed he needed support. He needed emotional and mental support. And finally, when he turned 18 and was free from his father, um, he could be with me solely and my family and his brothers and sisters and my parents and, and kind of get more of that emotional support. Um, he always mm -hmm. suffered from after that. He, he pretty much always suffered from anxiety and depression. Um, he'd have suicidal thoughts. Um, he would see a therapist here and there or a psychiatrist here and there um, when I could get him to go. And they would try to put him on medication, which he would try sometimes, but often he didn't feel that it was helping, so he would stop taking it. Um, after he turned 18, you know, it was a little bit harder for me to manage his care and be involved in his care because of HIPAA laws and things of that sort. So, um it really came down to me trying to encourage him to get help, get support, get get a therapist, get a psychiatrist that you feel comfortable with, and that just never seemed to really happen for him. Um, I would say in his that was in his teenage years, you know, his late teenage years, and then, um, but he was as a, as a child, as an overall kid, he was a very loving kid, um, very total mama's boy, you know, just wanted to be with mom, help mom. And um, he started working fast food, which he did really great at. All his coworkers loved him. And then as he got older, he got a job with a construction company. And um, 
they loved him. The boss loved him. The boss's wife loved him, took good care of him, helped him out when he ever needed some extra help. They just always looked out for him. And uh, my son had confided in them, his boss, you know, kind of the stuff that he dealt with as a child and the abuse from his father. And um, they knew that, you know, he had some issues with that. And they were very uh, lenient when he wasn't feeling well or if he had some depression and he they, he would call work and say, you know, I'm just having a hard time. I need a few days off and they would give it to him. And that was kind of the extent of what we saw going on for a good few years. Um, but it got collectively worse. The anxiety got collectively worse. Um, he'd be at work and he would call me almost daily saying he was sick to his stomach and he was he'd walked off the job and was standing in a private area trying not to throw up. And he just wanted, uh, he needed someone to talk to. I would do breathing exercises with him, talk to him, you know, help him use his tools that he and I both learned, you know, when it came to mental illness and anxiety and depression, you get all these tools kind of that you can use. And so I'd help remind him of these tools to a point where he could get himself back together and, and get back to work, which that went on for a few months. And then Eventually, he just, he couldn't even do that anymore. He couldn't, um, he just couldn't work anymore. He couldn't get himself up. He, uh, every time he'd go to work, he'd end up needing to leave early because he would have, like, anxiety attacks, panic attacks, to where I finally just went and picked him up from work. Um, He lived with a family member, his cousin at the time, and that seemed like it was going well. But he started getting so depressed and we were worried about him not being able to like kind of keep our eyes on him and a couple days would go by we hadn't heard from him and of course we're worried and um we'd finally touch bases and he said he hadn't eaten for a couple days and (laughs) didn't feel like doing anything sleeping you know sleeping a lot and um so finally i decided my husband and i decided we would get him and move him back in with us he was uh 22 at the time i would say and uh he moved back in with us, and he was agreeable to that. He had lost a lot of weight, we noticed, over the time. Um, the next several months, he started losing weight. And then in August of 2021, um, he became very suicidal to the point where uh, a doctor who he was talking to on the phone actually made him, my son put me on the phone and said, I'm completely not comfortable with your son's mental health. I I want him to go to an emergency room. And if you don't, I will know because I'm, you know, I'm making note of it. And uh, he had Kaiser at the time. So he said Kaiser would be expecting my son within the next two hours. And if my son did not show up in the Kaiser, then uh, they'd be sending law enforcement to my home to pick him up. They were very worried that he was going to kill himself. He not only talked about a plan, but he had a plan in place. And that was like a huge eye-opener for us here at home. And my son was agreeable, like, I guess this is what I have to do. You know, I need to get some help for for myself. And so we took him to the emergency room in August. He, uh, they kept him there. that in itself is a process. <laughs> you yes, know, it is. Yeah, they 
kept him there for several hours. I, I couldn't go back with him or anything, obviously, because of COVID protocol. And they ended up calling me at like midnight that night to tell me they were keeping him against his will, that they were admitting him as 5150, and they did not feel he was safe, and they were going to be um, sending him or transporting him to a hospital, psychiatric hospital. So they did that the next day. He spent three days in a psychiatric hospital. Um, he says that was a huge wake-up call for him then and uh, got out feeling much better. Despite it only being three days, uh, he got out feeling much better. He kind of was like, I got to take control of my life again. Um, I'm going to get my job back, and um, I just have to take control. So he went back to work again for a few months. And um, his employer took him back, said, sure, let's give it a shot. And it, it didn't last very long. He spiraled again into to depression. But this time we noticed a lot of paranoia. He became very paranoid. First it was little things like um, maybe a car parked in front of the house that he didn't recognize. And um, he would say, Mom, do you, do you recognize that car? And I'd go, no. I don't, and he was like, just found it really weird. And at that point, things just escalated very, very quickly. He um, became extremely paranoid. He was suspicious of everyone and everything. And my husband and I started going like, this is weird, right? It's not just, <laughs> it's not just me. Uh, this is weird. And my husband's like, yeah, this is, something's going on. This is not right. So we talked to him. We told him, you know, the way he's acting and how paranoid he sounds, it sounds like he could be going through some form of psychosis. And, you know, leading up to that conversation with him, my husband and I had done our research, of course, to see, you know, what what we could do to help him, what were these signs of. And a lot of them pointed to psychosis and you know, there's many different types of psychosis, forms of psychosis. Yes, welcome back to When the Bar Slammed Home. I have to apologize that we have lost signal, but I do have Shalane back on the line with us, and I'm going to let her pick up where she left off. Okay, thank you, Stephanie. Um, Basically, we were noticing, you know, my son experiencing some form of psychosis. We didn't know to what extent, but um, his paranoia just got increasingly worse to where he uh, started asking me if I hurt. Like, we'd be sitting down and he'd say, did you hear that? And I would, like, hear what? And and he goes, never mind, never mind. A couple times he'd bring me outside and he said, I'm starting to question what I hear, am I am I the only one hearing it? Is it both? Are you hearing that? And I, like, we were trying to fine tune little noises that he would hear. And I said, well, I heard that. That was this, or this was that. And he's like, okay, okay, that was. I heard that too. But um, he he recognized that there was something going on. That he was um, paranoid. And sometimes he would come to me and say, I know this sounds like I'm paranoid, but I really think that. This guy around the corner is like staring when he walks by. He's staring really hard, and and I don't I don't like it. And I was like, what? Well, like that neighbor's lived there for the last twenty years. <laughs> you 
you know, and he just said, I know, but he's just giving me weird vibes. And um, we had a a local uh, event in the area or a a news alert that uh, a woman had been killed in the area um, by a transient in the area. And so that really triggered him. He started thinking like every homeless person he saw could be the suspect. And um, he became very fearful, and he kept checking on us. Like, if I was in my room, he would come to my room and say, are you okay? And I'm like, yeah, son, I'm fine. He's like, okay. And um, I'd go out to get something from my car, and before I could get back in, he already locked the front door, and I'd have to knock to get back in. And I was like, son, like, what are you doing? He's like, this door needs to stay shut. And I was like, I just went to get you know, my, my wallet or something out of the, the car. Um, he would wake up in the middle or or actually not wake up. He'd be awake all hours of the night and would come in and check on me in my room. Wake me up. Wake me up at 2, 3 in the morning. One, one second, hon. You're okay. cutting out, and I don't okay. know if it's you or me. Okay, I, I I'm not moving, so... Let me check. Let me check mine. No, I've got full bars, so it's got to be coming from your end. Um, Are you using Wi-Fi or are you using um, data? I don't have Ethernet. Yeah, I don't have Ethernet. I don't have Wi-Fi. And your Wi-Fi should be coming in pretty clear. Is this better now? It is a lot better. Okay, I moved a, uh, closer to the window. I'll start here. Okay, so we'll pick um, up right, right, right where you left off. Okay, um, he would come into the bedroom and wake me up just to ask me if I was okay. <laughs> he mm-hmm. would uh, go into my younger daughter's room and do the same thing, are you okay? He would go into my son's room and just sit on his bed and just say, I don't I don't feel okay. Is it okay if I sit in here with you? I don't want to be alone. And he would just sit on the edge of my other son's bed. Um, he just kept getting worse and worse. You know, it's like literally day by day, it was something else, something new, more paranoia. He thought that uh, possibly we put something in his food, um, so he didn't want to eat. He was thinking my husband was not a safe person. He started asking me, like, how well do you really know him? And um, started getting suspicious of my husband, who he loved, who he spent many, many, you know, times out talking with him and pouring his heart out to him. And they were close. And all of a sudden, he just started feeling nervous around him. And my younger son told me that um, he thought that, um, my son was hiding screwdrivers or butter knives in the couch. And so we looked around and, and he had. He had put some screwdrivers in the couch cushion. Um, he had put a knife in another couch cushion. Of, and he said it was just for, it was for a protection because he felt scared. And, um, he started sleeping with uh, these metal-like vice grip type things that you would use in construction. 
and he started sleeping with them in his sweatshirt. And I was like, you know, this is not okay. This is getting bad. This is getting worse. And he accused me of stealing his wallet, which blew my mind. I'm like, what? (laughs) And then he thought, well, if you didn't take it, then, you know, his brother must have taken it. And we're trying to tell him, we don't do that. That's, that's not a thing. We don't, we don't do that. What are you doing? And he, he's like, do you not see what's going on here in this house? Do you not see what's going on? And I'm like, no, I don't. What is going on? What do you see? What do you feel? What is, you have to give me specific examples. I don't know what I'm looking for here. And he couldn't, he could never give me examples. And he would just say, it's just, it's a feeling that he had that something was going on that something weird was going on or some bad juju in the house and what in some terms he used at one point. So we saw and watched this just escalate over the course of, I would say, January and then into February, it just got collectively worse. He never left the house. He would stay home. You know, he was just home all the time. And he started, uh, in February, he started venturing out. He went up to um he went up to a bar and when he got up there he texted me and he said he was having this great conversation with this guy at the bar and it felt really good to be out and then I was like that's good son I'm glad you know I'm glad you're getting getting out and talking with people it's probably good for you and then next thing I know he's texting me that the guy's giving him weird looks now and he doesn't like him and he feels weird and this guy's suspicious and I told him to just come home. And that's when I first really started being fearful that he could do something to somebody. He's at this point so afraid of other people and he's so paranoid of other people that I was afraid he could easily hurt somebody that he thought maybe was going to hurt him. hmm I just need to take a break. That's okay, sweetheart. When I tell my daughter's story, I have to take several breaks. <sighs> it's like so it's okay to take it's okay to to be upset. It, it, this is just where it's like it gets real, you know, where it gets it just completely escaped us the situation. So fast. Um, I can I mean, there's many more stories that I could tell that he was, uh, that showed really how paranoid he was. But basically, they were all very similar. He would talk with somebody and then get spooked by that person. He, during the week of uh, February, it would have been February 17th, I believe, was a Thursday. This this year, 2022, um, he just left in his truck one day and was gone for hours. We had no idea where he had gone. We thought it was very weird. We couldn't reach him by phone. Um, None of his friends or our family had heard from him. And he ended up, I had gone to work. And shortly after I got to work in that evening, my husband texted me and said that he came home. And when he came home, he just got out of his truck and he walked up to my husband and pretty much just collapsed in his arms, said he'd been driving around all day, 
he felt like people were following him and he just wanted to be home. He was very scared and wanted to be home and was crying and hugging my husband. My husband brought him in the house. They went into the backyard. They talked in the backyard. And um, I, of course, was like relieved that he was home. Well, that happened again on Friday. He went missing again. And um, this time he didn't come home. And so Saturday, when I, when Saturday afternoon rolled around and he still wasn't home, we called the police and we filed a missing person report. Um, this would have been about the 19th, Saturday the 19th. And we, police came to our home. We explained the situation. We told him he is going through some form of psychosis, that he were very scared and worried that he could hurt himself. Um, he has had suicidal tendencies before. And at this point, he was displaying serious signs of paranoia to where I thought he could really hurt somebody. Um, if he felt threatened, which he pretty much felt threatened by any and everyone, even me, you know, his mom. And they took all the notes, whatever that looked like. I'm not, you know, I don't know exactly, but basically that we needed him to be apprehended. We wanted to put a 5150 hold on him or at least get him to the hospital. Mm -hmm. And he showed up. Uh, my son showed up and just collapsed in my arms showed up at the house, uh, was shaking, uh, obviously hadn't showered. And he, at this point, uh, he was 6'2 and 135 pounds. Oh, my. my. Keep in mind, his normal weight, like just everyday walking around weight, was like 180. Um, so here he is, 6'2, 135 pounds. I mean, just he was shaking. He fell to the ground. He said, I need to go to the hospital. I need to go to the hospital. Um, I've been awake for, you know, two days. I'm, I'm scared. Um, he said there was no drugs involved. I'm still waiting for a toxicology report, of course, So, um, but it still does not appear from all the evidence that we have that there, that any kind of drugs was involved. Um, he said he was going to take himself to the hospital. and. Uh, at this point, I was not comfortable taking him myself, even if he would have let me. I was afraid he might freak out while I was driving in there, you know, and either do mm -hmm. something to me or jump out of the car or who knows. Um, right. so I, I got to do this myself, Mom. I got to do this myself, but I got to lay down. I'm so tired. I, can I please just lay down with you? And I said, yeah. So he laid down in my bed. I laid there with him. I held his hand. and. Um, he was able to drift off to sleep, and he slept for a couple hours that Saturday and said when he got up, he was going to go to the hospital and said goodbye to me, my daughters, and uh, he never went. He never went to the hospital, and so we filed the, you know, missing person report to make sure, like, they knew he's gone again, he's dangerous, he's missing, <laughs> he's not okay at all, he needs to be caught and uh, the hospital put taken to the hospital or something and um they activated you know the missing person report and 
we spent all night, Saturday night, very scared until Sunday morning, very scared he would show up again because we, at this point, didn't know where he was. And uh, at 4.40 in the morning, on Sunday morning, the Folsom Police Department called and said that they came in contact with him and that they saw that there was a missing person report out on him and that he was 5150, that we that they did not feel that there was any reason to apprehend him, that he said he was just looking for a place to stay. And I said, well, maybe that's true that he's looking for a place to stay, but it's because, you know, he's freaking out. He's going through psychosis. My exact words to the officer on the phone was, if you do not apprehend him, and take him to the hospital, he is going to end up killing himself or killing somebody else. Like, this is how scared we are. And the officers told me, um, the officer's words were, well, I'm sorry, you're just his mom, and we are doing you, giving you this call as a courtesy so that you know we, we, we saw him and that he's alive. And I said, please. I begged and begged and begged, and they hung up on me. And can they, I stop they, you for a second? Could you explain to the audience what 5150 means? Sure. 5150 is basically a term that is used to describe somebody who is in the state of a psychiatric emergency. It can be varying degrees, um, but it's basically a way to say, look, this person is, is going through a psychiatric emergency of some sort and needs to be um, hospitalized, detained in some way. Okay. I wanted our audience to make sure that they understood what that was. I myself knew, but I wanted to make sure that they understood. Sure, sure. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, you know, I'm not sure the laws in, in different states, but um, I can say that all I want about his condition, but, you know, he was not diagnosed by a professional at this point. You know, he's just basically on the run. I'm his mom. I'm saying, Look, my kid is not okay. He is not okay. He's, we're scared. You know, we don't even want to be home. We don't know if he's going to show up and what he's going to do. And he needs to be captured. Like, I can't call the ambulance to get him because he's not, we don't know where he's at. Like, our plan at this point at home was if he shows up again, we don't let him leave at any cost, whether that be we we tie him up, <laughs> you know, we knock him out. Yeah. You know, whatever we have to do to keep him from leaving this house again so that we could call 911 and have them come to the home and get him. Um, right. Because really, what else did we, who did we have to help us? So we, especially once the, uh, once the police called us and told us that they came in contact with him, but they weren't keeping him, they let him go, I knew we were in trouble because who mm -hmm. else? were we going to count on? And the sad thing, too, is that, you know, my son was driving his truck. His truck had not been registered in years. The driver's side windshield of his truck was completely shattered. And he mm -hmm. should not that driving that truck in itself was illegal. And the cops saw that. They saw the kind of car he was in. There was no, no person could look at my son at this point, even not knowing him from Adam, and think that this kid was okay. And uh, 
so yeah, they they basically let him go. And so me and my husband and our other children here at home, we talked and we decided that we did not feel safe staying home. We were afraid that he might we were afraid that he might um show up at the house again and we just weren't prepared to handle that and put ourselves in danger. So um, my husband and I and our kids, we stayed in a motel on Sunday, February 20th. And I don't know. uh, Oh, I, I missed a big part. I missed a big part of something. Sunday morning, he showed up, my son showed up at the house and, uh, Again, remember I said we had a plan not to let him leave. So Mm -hmm. when he did show up Sunday morning on the 20th, I was talking to my son in the living room. He had already come in, did the same thing, kind of collapsed on the ground. Me and my 18-year-old, we settled him down on the chair to try and talk to him. He looked at me like he didn't know me. He said, where am I? And I said, you're home, son. You're home. And my husband had heard that he was home, so my husband tried to go out to the front yard to disenable his vehicle. He was going to pull the plug or whatever so that my my son couldn't start his truck. Mm-hmm. And um, but my but my son saw him, you know, do that, and got freaked out, ran outside, and so my husband's like, okay, well I can't disable his truck, so maybe I should jump in my own truck and try to block him in. And that spooked my son even more. And I tried to go out there and talk to my son. And he didn't want me to get in his truck. I had the passenger side door open and was kind of talking to him. And when my when my husband pulled the truck up kind of slowly around him to try and block him in, he, he freaked out. He took off um, hitting me with the truck door, threw it in reverse, hit me again with the truck door, threw it in drive. And I jumped out of the way and he took off pedal to the metal I could hear him screech through the whole neighborhood Um, my husband tried to follow him for a bit but my husband said there's no way I could keep up with him without driving like he was driving and he jumped on the freeway was driving like pedal to the metal all in and out of traffic as far as my husband could see on the freeway and my husband didn't follow him obviously at that point so when my husband came home, I had called 911 again. We had more officers to the house. I told the officers again what happened. And they said that the uh, police department that previously came in contact with him had dismissed the missing person report. And it was no longer even active and asked if I wanted to reenact that missing person. And I said, yeah, it's the only way to get your attention to to flag him, to flag his vehicle, to flag him as a person that could be dangerous to other people. Again, was not taken seriously at all. They said, we don't go chasing people around. Um, Thankfully, he had a, this police officer had a body cam on, so the whole conversation was recorded where, again, me and my son both told the officers, look, my my son just hit me with a vehicle. <laughs> you know, he's not okay. <laughs> he's freaked out, and this is not like him whatsoever. He needs to be apprehended. He's going to hurt somebody or hurt himself. And they said, well, unless he does something to give us reason to stop him or pull him over, 
then there's nothing we can do. And again, that's where we were like, man, we're in trouble. We're, he's, he's, this is going to be bad. This is going to be really bad. And so that's when all that happened. And uh, my husband and I and the kids decided, yeah, we're not staying here. We're not even going to get the help we need. And we just didn't feel like we could stay at home and feel safe. So we stayed in a hotel. We didn't hear from my son at all. It's now Monday morning. We leave the hotel. We go to Home Depot and we get a new lock for the door to switch the locks on the door so he couldn't get in. And we install it and I get a call from the uh, police department. Um, Again, this is Monday morning. So this is about 21 hours from the time, 21 hours later from the time that the officers were at my front door that I told them, you know, please get my son, please catch my son, please catch my son. Um, 21 hours later, I get a call that he's been um, apprehended. And all they told me was that he was at uh, the local medical, you know, the local hospital. And I, I was like, is he okay? Is he okay? And they said, all we can tell you is that he, he's at the medical facility. And so at that point, my husband and I were thinking, you know, we're relieved. You know, we don't know what condition he's in. We don't know if he got in a car accident, if he's tried to kill himself. We we don't know anything at this point, just that he's in a hospital. And that brought us some relief. You know, we also take a sigh of relief, like, okay, he's going to be okay. We're, gonna, we're okay. He's, you know, safe. We're safe. And so my husband and I, we drive up there right away, and we go in, and we try to see him. And at first, the nurses are cooperative at the front desk, like giving us our name tags and everything. And then you see when the light clicks on and the communication started in the hospital where it was like, oh, you can't see him. He's not here. They they just switched. They completely slipped to he's not here. And my husband and I are like, you just, you just like filled out our guest passes. Like you, you just, <laughs> you know, we know he's here. And mm-hmm. They said, we're going to have to ask you to step outside and wait outside. And I'm like, oh, God, you know, I'm thinking he's dead. He's died. And so my husband and I go outside. We're waiting. A social worker comes out and basically tells us, we can't tell you anything. If the police department told you he's here, then he's here and you need to talk to them. But if you're asking me if he's here, I'm going to tell you no. And so confused. We're just so confused. And I said, okay. Well, let me tell you, if he's not here, fine, okay. I know he's here, so let me give you this information. This is what just happened over the last few days. And she's like, okay. And she just, that's it, straight face, just listen to what I had to say. I told her about what had transpired the last few days, and she never responded. She just said, okay, that's it. And as soon as my husband and I get out to my car, um, My cell phone rings, it's a detective, and he said, you know, are you the parents, are you the mother of of so-and-so? I said, yes, and he said, well, I just, I said, well, I'm at the hospital trying to see him, and he goes, well, I just left the hospital from seeing him, and I said, okay, how's he doing? Is he okay? What happened? And he said that uh, he's being charged with murder. I said, What? Like, I could not have heard that correctly. There's no way. And I said, what? He said, yes, 
your son is being charged with murder. Um, that he has killed somebody in a hotel room and he was apprehended running naked downtown swinging a sledgehammer at moving vehicles. Mm -hmm. I said, no, 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 no. And the crazy thing is, is earlier that morning, um, I it was on the I think it was on the news in the um, Monday morning of that motel room early that the news was on and they were doing a report on a woman that was found deceased in a motel room that morning, and I thought, oh God, that's awful. Please don't. Just I just had this sick feeling like, please. I hope my son had nothing to do with that um, because the area that this motel was in and everything is an area that my son kept going down to to feed homeless people. He, the week before any of this happened, he was going down to different uh, stores and taking the homeless people um, inside the stores and letting them buy whatever they wanted. And then once they got outside, he would talk to them, and then that's when he would get spooked and just leave. He went to the park down in that area and gave away bags of clothes to people. And then once he started talking to them, he'd get spooked and he'd leave. So this was what he was doing, you know, kind of regularly a week before any of this had happened. So when I saw that news about, you know, a woman in that hotel, this particular hotel was, uh, known for housing homeless people. Um, it just made me sick. I thought, please don't let my son have something to do with this. And um, and so when the detective said he was being charged with murder, uh, he killed a woman in a, a motel room, and I said, is it the woman that was on the news this morning? And he said, yes. <clears throat> and I just, why? Why did, did you ask him why? Why did he do this? And the detective said that my son said because she had evil in her eyes. And I said, I told you. I told you guys. I tried to get help for him. I tried to get help from law enforcement to help get him. My exact words were he is going to kill himself or kill somebody. I said, did he hurt himself? And he said, yes, he tried to kill himself. He stabbed himself in the neck. He stabbed mm. himself in the stomach. He slit his wrists open. And apparently he tried to start the motel room on fire. And mm. motel security and uh, manager saw smoke coming out from underneath the door. And so they went to the room and they opened the door. And this is the second story of a hotel. And my son ran out of the room jumped off the balcony of the second story and ran. Somehow, some way, uh, accumulated this sledgehammer, um, probably from a construction truck from in the area because there's a lot of that going on as well. We think he probably picked it up, you know, from there somewhere. And then you hear uh, people start calling 911, reporting this naked man running around downtown swinging a sledgehammer and come to find out that was my son and it took several officers to detain him um 
of course, I only find this out from the detective once the detective called called me, and um, they I, I I don't know the care, I don't know the medication, I don't know what was done to him inside the hospital. Um, nobody would tell us anything, could tell us anything. I had no idea what kind of shape he was in. Um, I made some calls to some friends who had some friends that worked there, and um, they could only give us limited information about his injuries, that he was going to be okay. He would, you know, that he would survive from his injuries, but um, we didn't know the extent at all. And um, we learned later that day that the victim was uh, a homeless woman in the area. She also suffered apparently from a lot of the same mental illnesses that my son did, according to the victim's family. We don't know why this woman ended up in the room, how, why, anything. Um, we know that the detective asked him a ton of questions that he shouldn't have asked my son under those conditions, for sure. Right. Um, and he wasn't even kept in the hospital for 72 hours. You know, a standard person who's on, you know, uh, 5150 or being held 5150 or has obvious psychiatric, you know, problems, they do a mandatory 72-hour hold here. And he mm -hmm. wasn't even kept in the hospital 72 hours. And the only answer I'm getting in regards to that is because he was not detained by the hospital. He was arrested and was basically property of the police department. So the police department got to decide what they did with him. Which just, I still just can't wrap my brain around around that because, you know, my understanding is when these people that have these mental issues or whatever they get in the hospital, they become the hospital's priority. They're, they're mm -hmm. a patient. Before anything else, they're a patient. And it's like my son wasn't even taken care of as a patient. He was treated like a crazed, wild animal. And I understand at that time why, you know, they would have been having to detain him, you know, handcuff him to the bed, things of that sort too, for his safety as well as others. But to not even keep him for observation in there just boggles my mind. And he was basically transported to the, the the county jail two days later from when they picked him up. He did not trust anyone. He was still very freaked out and paranoid and felt everybody was out to get him. He felt that he had been drugged, that they put a bug in his body. That's why he had the... Uh, the abrasions and things like that on his legs and stuff is because he felt they put something there to track him. I mean, he was obviously not okay to anybody right. that came in contact with him. I mean, they said it took six officers to hold him down, 135 pounds, <laughs> six, six officers to hold him down. And at what point did they not think that this kid was psychotic? You know, yeah, going through some kind of psychotic episode. He ended up in jail. We didn't get to, I didn't get, get to talk to him for several days, still just completely in the dark as to what's going on. Um, and 
you know, fast forward, obviously, I know looking back now, you know, he was refusing help. He was refusing medication. He was refusing tests because he didn't trust anybody. He was completely out of it and didn't want them to give him anything. And the only thing that they were giving him was like a sedative, basically, to help keep him calm. Excuse me. Um, He was only on that for several weeks. Several weeks was that the only thing he was on. So after, I would say, a good month and a half, I want to say, before I could even go in there and see him, um, he still was not my son. I couldn't even see my son. Like looking, I was looking at my son, but it was not my son. Like in his eyes, I couldn't even see him. He was not there. He looked so just out of it, and he was looking around every little noise. Um, every person that said something, he would turn around and scream at them. And he would then at that point he started calling me uh, when he got his phone privileges. He'd call, and he would think that they were, you know, obviously I know they're listening, but everything was like, oh, we got called out of you know, day room, we, every time I get on the phone, I get called out of day room. So he just felt like everybody was conspiring against him. He said, there's a huge target on my back. I, I couldn't say anything. Everything I said was wrong. I either, you know, used the wrong word or used the name and it was freaking him out. And it wasn't until, you know, mind you, this happened in February. And it wasn't until I would say about a month ago they started him on a medication that he agreed to take that he um, started kind of coming out of that psychosis. Um, He slowly was coming out of it before, but still very paranoid. He said, I'm trying to trust the system. I'm trying to trust the system, but I just don't. Um, It doesn't help that, you know, his lawyer says, I'm going to come see you, and he doesn't. So there would be people that would try to talk to him in there but would get frustrated with him because he didn't want to talk to them. He's like, why would I talk to you? I don't trust you. And Mm -hmm. they're supposed to be professionals. And they would get upset with my son and say, you don't want the help then. Then you don't want the help. And some of the stuff that my son said, they said, at the beginning, you know, I wasn't so sure was really said because of my son's condition, mental condition. But as time went on and I could slowly kind of see my son coming out of his psychosis and becoming more and more like himself, I I knew more and more that I could trust and believe what he was saying he was experiencing, he really was experiencing. And so that I could um, I could talk to his lawyer about and say, is that really how this works? Is that really what's going on? Is that really what happened and his attorney would say, yeah, actually that is how that that's handled. So he was in a, um, they offered him an IOP program inside of the county jail. I'm not sure if you're familiar with IOP, the intensive outpatient, basically what they consider intensive outpatient therapy. Yes. Uh, they offered that program in there. Um, but every time my son would talk to me about it, they, he said, it's, it's, it's a joke. Like, they don't they don't take it serious. They don't take any of this stuff serious. And you know, whenever ever whenever I was in college my first time around, my um I took psychology. 
and sociology. And what you are speaking of, I experienced firsthand whenever I did my field work. Mm-hmm. And I would, went to the Chicago Mental Hospital, and the patient that I had to work with was like your son. Mm-hmm. But he thought that he had cancer, and he would dig at his skin. And this man had, I mean, giant sores on his face. And and it was the saddest thing that I had ever seen. And no matter what you said to him, he didn't believe. Yeah. And, you, you know, I got to the point to where I never crossed the line of what you're speaking about, but it got to the point where I could not watch him continue to spiral out of control and I had to leave the program, and yeah. and I wonder what happened to that man. And I am so happy that your son, I mean, not that he actually murdered this woman, that he has, now has help. Yeah, and I, and I feel like you know he's gonna he's gonna get the help eventually. I don't think he's getting the help he needs where he's at. The county no. jail, as in, as it is in, in most states that I've read about, county is just like the worst. <laughs> it is. It's the worst place they can be. But once they get placed where they're going to be placed, whatever that looks like, they can really start getting the help they need because these places that they get placed in seem to be a little more invested in their people. Here, I get this is just a, a revolving door of criminals mm-hmm. and people that have mental health issues so they just I get that I, I really do so I, I try to tell my son you know some you're you're in a place right now where you are surrounded and he's on the mental health floor of the jail and that's where he's been and that's where he'll stay is on that mental health floor and I said believe it or not it's probably better on this floor than even in general population because yes. There's more people watching you. There's more doctors involved. And while it may not seem that you're getting the care, somebody's still watching you and keeping an eye on you. He's been in and out of suicide watch there in county jail. They've had him in suicide watch where he's basically in a room and he's watched through a door 24 hours a day. And My daughter is serving 23 years at Rockville Correctional Facility and she was wrongfully convicted, but since day one, she has volunteered for Suicide Watch. Wow. And yeah. she spends 12 hours a day doing nothing but watching through the door at patients who are on Suicide Watch. And she wow. said, Mom, she said, I have to tell you, she said, you can tell the real ones from the fake ones. Yes, my son said the same thing. He said there's a lot of people there that have issues and there's a lot of people there claiming to have issues. And and Mm -hmm. he said, now that I'm more clear-headed, you can definitely tell the difference. (laughs) And she she says that it has really affected her and that she now has PTSD and Mm -hmm. that she's going to have to have help when she comes home because of everything that she has seen through those doors. Yeah, and, sure, yeah. And she said, Mom, I, don't ha- I have to tell you, 
she said, this is no place for the people that have really serious mental issues. She said, because I've seen so many of them who will sneak a little plastic fork, you know, the tine off of a mm-hmm. plastic fork, they'll break it off the fork, and when they come in and they take their tray and they leave, they wait for the person to leave and they take that little plastic fork and they stick it into their jugular. Mm-hmm. And, and she said, Mom, I have seen so many. And she said, it's no place for the seriously mentally ill. And it's, really said, and, and it's just too bad that, that there's, you know, I real they have to go through their protocols to, to really figure out who's, who's legitimately sick and who's not. And these people that are in charge of that are just seeing this all day, every day. I mean, I, I can see how they would become desensitized by, yes. by these people, by these things. They, and stop caring. You know, their job is to just, do A, B, and C. It doesn't matter if the person is legitimately sick or not. Their job is A, B, C, A, B, C, A, B, C, same or mm-hmm. same or female. And there's ones that, you know, it's just unfortunate that there's not a way to weed out those ones that need help. And they claim there is, and they claim that's why they're on the mental health floor, but yet, you know, they put my son in this IOP program in there, and after six weeks told him he was done, and my son begged it not to be done. He said, please don't make me leave this program. It's it's the only thing that I have that I feel like could possibly help me with my my health, my mental health. And they said, "There's nothing else for you in this in this program," and yes. dismissed him. And so he's not in any program again. You know, social workers will come and go. He said he can't believe that these are social workers. That <laughs> that this yeah. is what they do. They just seem like just average Joes off the street that really have no idea what they're doing. And I'm sure that's some partly true. But it's like where we just have no idea, you know, what what's really going on in these facilities. And I and I can say without a doubt that they're not getting the help that they need. And no. I, I, no, my, I really hope that once he's placed wherever he is placed, as you as you mentioned in the outset, you know, his attorney is is attempting to plead not guilty by reason of insanity, and he feels pretty confident in that based on my son's you know, psychiatric history, his his prior stuff that he's gone to the hospital for, things of that nature, um, and everything that we have on, on body cam with the police, the phone calls to, to the police, and the things that we, you know, were saying were going on show, like, he was not okay, and we were trying to get help. And my son is not a criminal. He is a victim who committed yeah. a crime, and that is a big, big difference. Of so a big difference. They are not criminals. They are victims who have committed crimes and need to be handled as such. Locking them up, locking them up to, for, is doing what? You know, I, I hope that my son is sentenced to, you know, a facility where he's institutionalized, where he can actually get the help, even though for us here that means he'll be placed far away. I mean, we don't have any close to where we live. There's only like one left in the in our entire state, and he'll be placed far away. But he's he, otherwise, you know, he's looking as you mentioned to 25 years in prison. And my son says, "I'm not doing that. I, I'm telling you right now, Mom, I'm not doing 25 years in prison. I I can't live like that. I'm not going to live my life like that. 
I don't deserve to live my life like that. I'd rather not be here, is what he says. And I tell him, I just want him to have some peace. I want him to be at peace. And, you know, now we're in this whole new phase where he is being given medication for um, schizophrenia, and that is helping. I'm happy to say he's gained 50 pounds since he's been in there since February. So he's looking healthier and sounding healthier and can have a conversation without being distracted. Now it's just a matter of him because he doesn't remember. He doesn't remember a lot of what has happened, but bits and pieces are coming back to him, and he's asking me to to validate or say, is that true or not true? Mm-hmm. And, I, and I can't say <laughs> either. Right. What really happened and what didn't. You know, I know that, you know, my daughter, she deals with this on a daily basis, and she said, Mom, she said, when they have their lucid moments, she said, they do ask you questions. And she said, and I am not allowed to tell them anything. She said, all I can do is just watch. Yeah. And she said, and that tears me apart. She said, because these people have a right to know the answers to to their questions. Yeah. And And she said, if I knew the answers, I would give them to them. As best as as I could. Yeah, my son says as well, you know, he said that, um, and you can tell when I talk talk to my son on the phone or if I get a visitation where I go and see him, I can can tell when he's what would be considered lucid and when he's not doing okay because he still has these moments. It's by no way anywhere near what it was. But you can still tell when he's, he's agitated or... Um, yeah. feeling unsettled as opposed to, look, I'm here. This is where I'm at. I got to find the good in this. You know, I got to ride the wave. I got to trust the system, that kind of mentality. And when he does have those lucid moments, um, uh, he says the same thing as your daughter. You know, he just wants to be communicated with. He wants answers. He wants his attorney to talk to him. Tell me what what's going on. You know, what can I mm-hmm. expect? At least inform me. He said that would make this process so much more endurable if they would just communicate because regardless if they're lucid or not they're treated the same you're right they are the staff you know and so it's very confusing to them that's in there like to them they've been acting normal this whole time (laughs) you know right everybody else but when he does have those lucid moments he wants answers he's like and and they don't give them to them none right None, no answers. And no, uh, no. even the attorneys, you know, their own attorneys can't even answer a lot of the questions that they have when they meet with their with their clients. You know, that's another huge frustration is, you know, my son wants to meet with his attorney and my, his attorney doesn't even come in there and talk to him. And, you, you know, know, his attorney is probably afraid. Probably. Doesn't want him to say something that he, you know, because you never know, you know, I mean, nothing against Joe, but yeah. you never know when he's going to have another break. Um, so many of them, they sit in those little tiny cells where there's nothing but padding, and when their medicines are brought to them, and this comes from my daughter, she said, Mom, I watch them take those pills right out of their mouth, 
she said they um, they do swallow them, but they regurgitate them back up, mm-hmm. so that and they hide them. Yeah, because they don't like the way that this medication makes them feel. Yeah, and she said, I have to report every incident that I see of that. She said, but there's some of them. She said, I don't want to report. She said, because they really do need to be in the, that state where they don't know what they've done. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, she, she said, said some of them have really done some atrocities that I can't even speak of. They were so bad. Right. And, and I think that whenever Joe realizes exactly what he has done, Mm-hmm. That's when the true danger is going to lie within. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. how I feel, absolutely, because there's the last few times I visited, you know, he has inquired about things and he can barely talk about it. And he just breaks breaks down, breaks down yeah. crying. Like, how did this happen? Why did this happen? How could How could this happen? And he just apologizes to me over and over and over. I'm so sorry, Mom. I'm so sorry. I don't know how this happened. I, you know, and you can see the pain, like, that now he has to live with what he's done. And mm-hmm. he's having to learn to cope with that. You know, in addition to his own things he was already dealing with, now he has to deal with with this feeling. And, yeah. I mean, I just, I want so badly to be able to, bring awareness to these people, but also to, you know, the victim herself. You know, I I will forever have her face and name engraved into my mind, and Mm -hmm. I hope that some way, somehow, through what I'm doing, um, I can bring justice for for this woman as well, because she should have never had to die, and I plan on pursuing, pursuing the police department involved to the fullest extent that I can. Yes, Not because you tried to, to prevent it. Yeah. You know, and my I've heard my daughter say after just five years, she said, Mom, it is so bad on me watching these people. She said, I have contemplated jumping from the catwalk. Yeah. And she said, so don't ever think that I'm okay because I'm on suicide watch, she said, because what they go through, I experience with them. She said, Mm -hmm. I see the things that they do to themselves, and she said, and it makes me, she said, it almost makes me um, mirror their actions. Right. And she said, I have thought of jumping from the catwalk because I can't imagine when they have their lucid moments what they're actually going through. She yeah. said, I can see that. And she said, I want to kill myself. And she said, I can't imagine what they they must feel. Yeah, the burden and the, the guilt that they carry. Yeah. And, you know, uh, and this is all happening within prisons. This isn't even a mental ward in a prison. This is in solitary confinement. And your your son does not belong behind prison bars. He does not belong in solitary confinement. He needs to be in a mental hospital where the people are trained exactly. to get him back to a stable to a stable place in his mind. 
Exactly. And, and that's my hope for him. And it's just the process is so long. My, my heart goes out to anybody who's dealing with this, the parents, siblings, family in general that are dealing with this because the process of getting them where they need to be, we're not even looking at trial until probably the beginning of the year. So this year he's committed this crime and is in this facility for a year before he actually yeah. gets the help he needs. And that's due to many different reasons, but the the whole system itself is just, it just blows my mind. It, it blows my mind and, and I would just love to know what and how we can do something about it. And you know, the sad part is there's really not a whole lot that we can do. I, like I said, I have been fighting for five years now for the wrongfully convicted and those who have actually committed crimes and to get them better help. Right. Because everyone that's behind prison bars has some kind of mental um, health issue. Right. And when they go to mental health, they're in the prison they are given the same thing as everybody else that goes there. They're given the cheapest um, antipsychotic or they're given the cheapest depression medication that really doesn't do anything for them. And they're still having to battle their own demons. They're still going in and out of psychosis and psychotic breaks and schizophrenic episodes. and. They're not getting any help whatsoever. And I've been trying to fight that for five years. And um, I just teamed up with a young woman um, as my co-host, and she's only with me maybe once a month because she uh, takes care of um, psychiatric patients that are at home. Okay. And... She just now got her license to be able to practice inside the prisons. And she said that she can practice in any of the 50 states. And I am so happy to hear that because she is one that genuinely cares. And I hope that Joe, as we're calling him, I hope that he gets somebody like her. Yeah. That's that's what it's gonna take, you know, and I and I hope and I and I have faith that there are still some out there, like like you mentioned your friends, you know. Uh that's what it's gonna take. It it just takes one or two to really get in there to make a difference. It that's all it's going to take because they're gonna speak out against the injustices that these people are going through. And um my daughter met one of the ladies that she had, she couldn't take it anymore, and she took my daughter aside, and she told my daughter everything that she could in an hour period, and it was on her lunch break. And she said, I want you to know this, Sholly, because you have been with the psychiatric ward for since you've been here. Mm-hmm. And she said, I, and I want you to know that what you're doing is phenomenal, she said, but it's not going to change anything within this prison. And she said, but I can't take it anymore. She said, my own mental health has deteriorated so badly that I have to leave 
or mm-hmm. I'm or I'm going to be one of them. Yeah. And, right. And she said she said, I want you to know that I love you for what you have been trying to do with these patients, that you do talk to them when there's no guards around. And mm-hmm. and she said, You are one of the the best um inmates that this place has. She said you didn't genuinely care. When my daughter went in, she was a nurse. Oh, gotcha. Mm-hmm. So she was, you know, she was in, it was ingrained with her, within her to want to help people. And she said the first thing I thought of was mental health care. And she said, so I volunteered. And she said, but mom, I've been now doing this now for four years. And she said, I see where Shannon was coming from and why she left. She said, because I'm going to have to stop. Yeah, that brings a good point too, Stephanie, in that, you know, while going through all of this with my son, um, I had to constantly remind myself that if I don't take care of myself, I'm going to be no good to him. And right now I'm all he has. And, you know, if I, you know, I deal with my own mental health issues. So if it, it was really wearing on me to where I was, I was feeling it very, very badly, having a hard time just functioning day to day, work, so on and so forth, as you can imagine. But mm-hmm. um, that's what moved me and motivated me to join NAMI. And I mentioned that to you. Um, yes. The National Alliance for Mental Illness. I strongly advise people to research that. I have found a lot of strength and a lot of support in, um, and a lot of knowledge that I personally can apply to myself, but also can help my son. So, you know, I didn't, I'm not familiar with schizophrenia and, and a lot of the information that I'm learning <clears throat> has really helped me understand the, the illness itself and provided me with new tools that I can then turn around and provide him. So while he may not be getting the help inside from those inside, I can learn as much as I can outside and share that information with him. And that has been a huge, huge help to me, not just, you know, other support groups, but this NAMI, uh, the NAMI group especially, they have classes for all different kinds of things. And if you can use it for the knowledge, you can use that knowledge then to help your loved one, you know, that's yeah. in, or help anybody that's asking, because it's crazy the things that people are going through and you don't know until you speak your story. And then you hear of other people with similar stories and you can like share a little, you know, gold nugget of, of, of knowledge with them that really has the ability to change a person and they can share that with their loved one as well. So I have found a lot of comfort in that, in that group as well. And, you know, I have to tell you about my daughter Um, here about a month ago, she would start to call me at odd hours. And she would tell me, she said, Mom, I think I have a target on my back. And I said, what do you mean? She said, Mom, I know I'm being targeted. And it started to make me wonder Mm -hmm. about her own mental health. Right. And, you know, there was just so many of these phone calls. And then two days ago, she called me and... She said, I said, how are things today, sweetie? And she said, Mom, everything has changed. She said, 
the target's gone. She said, I'm perfectly safe. She said, I can go back to the cafeteria or to the chow hall, and I don't feel threatened. And she said, I'm perfectly fine. Wow. So it makes me wonder if she has been with the psychiatric patients too long and she started to mirror yeah, their psychoses. It would and make sense. I mean, it would it does make, make sense. It, you know, I I was even questioning, you know, things that my son was saying, you know, about his surroundings started making me question my own surroundings. It does, you, you know, know, and my husband said he was starting to see it in me. Mm-hmm. And, and that's just listening to her over the phone. Yeah. So, you know, it not only affects our children, but it affects ourselves. And then we project it out to the rest of our families, and we all end up with some kind of psychosis. And, (laughs) you know, and you start to question yourself, am I going insane? Yeah, you know, we do. And and that that is exactly why I did what I did in joining NAMI, because somebody has to get a grip. (laughs) <laughs> you know exactly I felt like somebody has to get a grip on this situation and I've been through lots of other traumatic situations in my life where I was the one that got a grip and mm-hmm. I looked at this situation as I no different I have to get a grip on this situation somebody some of us have to maintain our sanity to be able yes. to handle this in a reasonable manner and once I knew like I started questioning myself that's when I was like I had to start creating boundaries. You know, you mentioned yeah. the late night phone calls. I had to tell my son right away, you know, like he would call same thing. He would, you know, be let out for day room, you know, 11, 1130 at night. I get up at four or five, six in the morning. I'm yeah. not awake at 11 o'clock at night, 12 o'clock at night. And at first he had no concept of time. So I yeah. know he, he just didn't know, but I had to create those boundaries. I had to say, look, son, if you call me after 9 p.m., I'm not going to answer. It's not because I don't want to. I'm, I'm ignoring you. It's because I have to get my sleep. I'm fighting for you. And I, in order to fight for you, I have to take care of myself. I, I, you know, there's many days that I don't go see him that I planned on seeing him, but the day comes and I just emotionally cannot do it. And I feel guilty. I feel horrible. But I have to remind myself that if I don't take care of myself, how am I going to take care of him in any way or offer him any kind of encouragement because like I said, I'm at the beginning of this process. He's not even sentenced yet. So, you know, I can only imagine what the, you know, the years to come are going to be and I'm only at the beginning and I won't survive if I don't take care of myself. I, I just, I know I won't that be able is, to endure it. That's, that's the one thing that I wanted to tell you is you have to look out for you first. Um, at first, when my daughter was sent off, I laid in bed for a year and a half. I would not get out of bed. I was paralyzed with fear, not for not for myself, but for her. Yeah. I didn't know what was going on. And when she would call, I wouldn't believe what she was telling me. I, I thought that she was lying to me to protect me. Mm-hmm. And she was. You know, she wasn't telling me everything. And then came the day when I said, tell me what is really going on. I can hear it in your voice. And she did. And I about lost it. 
Yeah. But that's the day that I got out of my bed and I got angry. I got angry at the system and mm-hmm. I started to fight back. Right. And you ha- you have to become a fighter in order to save your child. Yeah. And and sometimes with that fighting, that sometimes that fight is included or part of part of fighting is doing what we're doing. I feel it's mm-hmm. bringing awareness to 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 the system, to our loved ones, to the the society that we're in, the things that these our, our children go through. You know, it, it's mm-hmm. just bringing awareness, and that to me is part of, of fighting for them as well, because there isn't you know, a lot that we can do in there. That's one of the biggest um, things that you can do to help your child is to bring awareness to society, because society thinks that. If they're in there, they must deserve to be in there. Right, right. And you know, even and it's hard, I, I mentioned to you, you know, it's hard to even know where your own family's coming from, like mm-hmm. my grandparents, his aunt, uncles, cousins. You know, there's ones that have not reached out, that have not even seen him or talked to him because they can't. And, you know, I know there's a lot of his friends that have just been like, just completely written them off, terrified, mm-hmm. and, and I get that. And if I if if it's if it's that way with your close, intimate loved ones, then imagine how the rest of society feels about our loved ones that are in jail. Yes, you know it's it's sad. <laughs> you know, I have to tell you that my daughter, like I said, has been gone for five years, almost six years now, and the only person that has written her any letter and has contacted her in any way is her little sister. Um, Of course, her father and I, but it's her little sister. Her little sister is her biggest champion. Mm -hmm. And she is the only one besides her father and I that actually believes that she is innocent. Mm -hmm. And... Um, she said, Mom, when I come home, she said, I want nothing to do with society. Yeah. She said, I literally am going to build me a treehouse in the woods. And, you know, they make some beautiful treehouses. And my daughter is very skilled at carpentry. Mm -hmm. And she said, I don't want to have to um, be with society any longer she said, I've been here for six years, and not one person other than my little sister has contacted me. Yeah. She said, that tells you what society thinks of people who are behind bars or right. that have men- mental um, mental problems. Right. And, and she said, I don't want to have to deal with them anymore. She said, if they think that of me now, what are they going to think when I come home? Are they going to be afraid of me? Yeah. And she said, I don't want to have to deal with that. And she said, so I have to move away from where we currently live. I have to be away from people. Yeah. That's a valid concern. (laughs) It it really, really is. You know, so my husband and I are fixing to go on vacation to North Carolina and she said, if I could live anywhere, I want to live in North Carolina. And we just found that out after we made our vacation plans. 
So while we're on vacation next month, we're going to be looking for property in North Carolina because we hope that she's going to be coming home soon. And that way she can do whatever she wants on that property. She can build her a tree house. Yeah, someplace where she can feel safe. <laughs> yes, because she said, Mom, I'm not safe outside these walls. Yeah. And she said it is so easy to become institutionalized very quickly. Yeah. And she said, I can only imagine what the people that are that really have the serious mental issues what they're going to feel like when they get out. Yeah. She said they're not going to feel safe at all. And now the parents, I I could see that, and then you know that puts us back into you know mama bear mode of protecting yes. our children, no matter how old they get. I, you know, you figure, you know, I don't know your child's age. My son was 23 when he went in, so you know, I don't know what it looks like if if he's institutionalized. Does that there's, you know, the lawyer says that's with an indefinite amount of time, which means, you know, their goal is to rehabilitate them so they can be part of society again. So is that five years, 10 years? And then when he gets out, you know, let's say 10 years later, he's 33 years old and he comes back home with me and my husband. I mean, like, what does that even, <laughs> like, what does that even look like? And I my know. Daughter, my daughter is 38 now. 38. Yeah. Yes. So she went in at 32, mm-hmm. and, you know, she had two daughters that were young, and her daughters have grown up without her through their teen- teenage years, mm-hmm. and that has been the hardest on her mental state. Oh, yeah. N- knowing that she got caught up in a situation that put her in prison for 23 years. And she said, Mom, I will not serve 23 years behind bars. She said, I want you to know that. She said, I will not. She said, if this appeal doesn't work and the PCR doesn't work, she said, I'm telling you goodbye early. Yeah. Uh, It's painful. Uh, There's no other name for it. It's just... Yeah. And you know, and I I choke up just talking about it. Yeah. And I, but I can understand her viewpoint. Definitely. And so I can imagine when Joe does come back to his full um, mental stability, as close mm-hmm. as he can get to it, what yeah. he's going to feel. Yeah. And I have to tell you, you're going to have to be on 24-hour alert. Yeah, because I'm already on 24-hour alert, and I sleep maybe three hours a night mm-hmm. because I never know if night is going to be the night. Right. Yeah, I I know that feeling all too well. And in the meantime, that's why I plan on preparing myself for the job, <laughs> as you said, being on alert 24 hours a day. Um, I'm going to prepare myself now as much as I can with as much information as I can to mm-hmm. be able to do that because I still have other children that need me. You know, my youngest yes. is 13, so I, I still have to be present. I have to be here and present for them as well. And so I just... And there's one thing that I might suggest, and this is my only thought, um, my own thoughts, because I don't know what the psychiatric field 
thinks of this, but you have to train your children to watch for those subtle signs as well. Mm-hmm. No doubt. You know, you know, 13 is just a child, but 13 can also be an adult, and they can see the subtle differences. Mm-hmm. I mean, just the, the, the slightest little thing that seems off, and yeah. they need to be taught those things. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Like that whole that whole thing of of bringing awareness is is most definitely to your loved ones, <laughs> especially yes. those living living within your home, so that we are all the best equipped to to handle the situation when the yes. time comes. And I think that in your son's case, I, I truly believe that he's not going to get twenty five to life. I really don't. But you never know. Yeah. And I pray that he is put in a hospital where he can get the help that he needs. Same here. Yeah. I, I, you know, I have some pretty strong prayer warriors out there and I'm going to ask them to pray for him that that's what occurs because if he is stuck behind prison bars, it's only going to get worse because they don't give them the medications that they really need and they get worse and they get worse and they get worse. Right. And I don't want to. I don't want to see that happen to Joe. Yeah. Thank you, Stephanie. Well, you're quite welcome. You know, and I tell people that I'm an empath because I feel everything that you feel when you tell me your story. Um, I can't help but feel it, and yeah. I go to bed at night feeling your pain and your uncertainty. Yeah. And I've had to learn lately how to start to let those feelings go. From mm-hmm. after me talking to you, I have to learn to let them go, but it's so very difficult. Yeah, and yeah. I'm an empath as well, and so you carry that, <laughs> and that's, you do. that's another thing you learn through, you know, through my course studies that with with Nami is is that very thing. And um, again, I, you know, I just appreciate the, the the opportunity to share my story because getting it out there, telling it, and I know that somebody will hear it and and empathize, but they'll they'll be able to take something from it that I hope they can gain strength from um, in knowing that they're not alone and that as parents, you know, we we your job is never done. Big kids mm-hmm. need kid problems, <laughs> adults need yeah. adult problems, and um, you're just not alone. And I just wish the best for them all. Yes. And I want you to make sure that you do take care of yourself. You know, don't, don't forget your own mental health. Right. Yeah. Um, I have went back into counseling because of what my daughter has experienced. Yeah. Because what she experiences, I experience, you know, when she calls me from prison, I close my eyes and I'm behind those walls with her and I see her leaning up against the wall with her shoulders slumped. Yeah, on the phone. You no. Know, yeah, and then when I open my eyes, she's not there. Yeah. So, you know, her being in prison has put me in prison. Yeah. And that and I didn't realize that at first, but when I finally woke up from my being paralyzed that's when I realized that, yes, I was incarcerated with her. Yeah, we're serving, we're serving our time on the outside. I've read it said that way, you know. We're literally yes. serving the time with them, but we're just serving it on the outside. Yes, and I just released my book. My um, my book launch isn't till September 9th. And the story, I mean, the name of the story is From the Outside Looking In. Mm. 
and the name really does tell the story and it's about my experiences going through incarceration with my daughter mm-hmm. and everybody thinks it, it's about my daughter because I do talk about her but it's mm-hmm. really not it's about how to protect yourself mm. from um, going through what they are going through yeah you know and that's why I want that book to sell I don't care about the money that comes from the sale of the book, I donate it. Yeah. But I want people to read the story and understand that you have to take care of yourself, that you have to place those barriers between yourself and your child, that yeah. you can't let their their emotional state affect yours. Yeah, exactly. Because Because you can't help them if you're in the same boat that they are. Exactly. So I'm praying for you as well as Joe and the rest of your family um, because I don't want to see you fall into that category that I did for so long. I want you to stay mentally strong so that you can fight for him. That's my goal. That's my plan. And I hope that I find the strength in helping others will continue to, to strengthen me as well. And I think it will, the more you talk about it, you know, to other parents that are just starting out, I mean, you've been in it now since January and even before then, so you've Mm -hmm. already experienced a lifetime of emotional stress. Yeah. And you've got so much more to go. Yeah. There's some that are just hitting day two. Yeah. And you're able to help them. Yeah. And I pray that you become stronger and stronger and that you begin to speak out so much more and help those others because they need you. Yeah, no doubt. Thank you. Thank you for letting me use this as as one of those one of those ways, you know. This I'm very happy to have been able to share this with you. Well, any time that you feel like that you need to talk, you know, if it becomes overwhelming, know that I am here for you. You have my phone number now, and you can put me on speed dial. Um, <laughs> I I think that I have 2,000 women on uh, with my name on their speed dial. I bet, and, yeah. <laughs> and they call me in every hour of every day. And there's some nights that I am woke up at 3.20, you know, and that I might have just went to, back to sleep from getting a call at 2.20. Wow. So feel free to call me anytime that you feel panicked or you just want to say, hey, we had a breakthrough today and mm-hmm. I wanted to celebrate. Um, I'm always here for you. Thank you. Well, I'd love to come back and, and speak with you when I I know what, what happens. Um we're yes. looking at a preliminary hearing here shortly. It was tomorrow. It's been postponed till next week. Um, but I would love to to definitely come back and, and let you know what and where my son ended up and, and kind of where I am with my, my myself and my journey as well. Yes. I mean, it is so very important to let me know because I will sit here and worry and worry and worry what has happened to your son and what yes. happened to you. Yeah. So even if we don't go online, 
you can at least let me know that everything is okay. Yeah, will do. So I want to thank you, Shalyn, for um, agreeing to speak to me about this sensitive subject. And it, and once again, it is so vitally important that we do speak out. It has always been the hidden, what do they, what do they call it? The hidden sickness. Um, there's another word for it, but it, it's always been hidden. It, you know, mm-hmm. they hide the mental illness and mm-hmm. It's people like us that are willing to speak out about it that is bringing awareness to the world. And I want you to continue to speak out because it's it's too important. Yeah. Thank you. So thank you for being on my show. Thank you for sharing your story and that of your sons and your families. And please call me back. I will. Will do. I will. Thank you so much, Stephanie. Um, I do want to ask you one last question before we go. If there is anything that you can tell another mother out there to maybe that's just starting on this journey that might give them a little bit of hope, what would it be? Well, man, from my experiences, these types of things I don't think we ever get over. We just get through it and literally take it one day at a time and not get caught up in the what ifs and try to stay present um, and take care of yourself because we're no good to our children if if, if we're not taking care of ourselves. You know, when you said that don't get caught up in the what ifs, that was me. Mm -hmm. I got caught up in the what ifs. And yeah. it took me two years to get out of the what if stage, and I'm never going back. Yeah. And, and I thank you for stating that because it's so vitally important. Don't get caught up in the what ifs. Yeah, right. Because it gets you nowhere. It just makes it worse. Yeah, and you're gonna you're gonna create scenarios that are never gonna happen. You're mm-hmm. never gonna see those scenarios because they're all things that you've come up with. So just spare yourself the pain of going through things that you don't have to go through because there's going to be enough things that you actually do have to go through. So take those things for what they are on a day-to-day basis and just try to stay present. You're very wise to have come up with that in such a short time. It took me two years, and it's only taken you, what, seven months? (laughs) Right, right. So you have to be very wise to have come up with that in such a short time. But thank you, Shalyn, and I want to thank your family for bearing with us. Of course. And, mm-hmm. you know, because it does take, I, I hate I hate to say, but it does take a village. Oh, for sure. You know? And my daughter lost her village. The only people she has is her father, myself, and her two children and her sister yeah she lost her village and i don't think that joe is going to lose his village thank you there, I, 
I think that he has enough people that care genuinely care about him that they're not going to forget about him like they have my daughter. Yeah. I hope so, and I, I will work every day to try to make make sure that doesn't happen. Yes, and thank you for that. Thank you for that. So I will let you go and okay. know that my prayers are with you every day and that I know that sometime in the near future that you will see the light at the end of the tunnel. Thank you. I'm watching. <laughs> I'm watching and waiting. Yes. You know, you know, I looked, and I still do sometimes, I look at the world as if I'm looking through that video camera at the prison. Mm-hmm. You know, that there's a thick piece of glass between me and the outside world, and I can't reach the people on the other side. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So... I still feel like I have a long way to go to reach that light at the end of the tunnel. And that, you know, with every phone call and with every interview that I do, I'm getting a little bit closer, just a yeah. little bit closer. Right. Yeah, That I was going to say, I mean, that's just being able to have a place to speak about my situation. For you, you having this podcast, you having this plot, uh, platform, for other people to speak is 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 really helping uh, probably way more than you even know. I hope that it is, and that's the reason I started it because I felt like I needed some place that I could speak. Yeah. And if I you know, and I thought, well, if I need it, there has to be other people, and that's why I started it. And it's been overwhelmingly a success, you know, and and every person that I have spoken with have told me, you don't know what this has done for me. Yeah. You know, just, just to be able to tell my story has opened up something inside of me that I'm not so afraid to speak out about my problems. Right. And it'll become easier each time. You know, yes. it's the foundation to build on, and that's yes. that's what I plan on using this opportunity as a, a foundation to continue to build on on speaking on the subject. Yes, and I'm so glad that I was able to give you that that platform to start to begin to be able to tell that you know tell that to the world. Thank you. Well, thank you so very much, Lynn, and I will let you go. Okay, and I, we will talk soon. Yes, we will. And if I don't hear from you, I have your number now, so yes. you just may hear from me. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> well, you take care of yourself and you take care of those children that you have at home, and sure. do not forget your husband. Also right. take care of him. Yes, no doubt. Thank you so much. Thank you, Shalyn, and you have a great evening, and may God bless you all. Thank you. Good night. Thank you. Good night.